This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Wednesday, February 16th from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You may recall some news out of San Francisco about the school board there renaming schools or tearing down murals or apologizing for old anti-Asian tweets. Well, even if you don't recall, overnight parents in San Francisco recalled three school board members. Mm-hmm. Come with me on a little bit of a journey. By voting totals that political science experts dub not even close, Allison Collins, Fouga Maliga, and school board president Gabriela Lopez were terminated by voters. Maliga, who had tried to distance himself from the uncompromisingly reformist instincts of the other board members, fared the best, and he only got 72% of voters demanding that he go away. Running the schools of large cities is never an easy job, and it's hard to satisfy all constituencies, but the San Francisco school board seemed quite content with satisfying almost no constituencies. The first decision that garnered national attention of this group was the decision to rename schools, 44 schools in fact, at an estimated price in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Among the names to be scrubbed was... George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Paul Revere, Dianne Feinstein. I know Feinstein would like to be put in that company, just not in the case of taking her name off of school. So Feinstein, as you know, is uh, California's senator now. She was once mayor of San Francisco. And when in office, a protester had ripped down a Confederate flag that was part of a municipal display. The Parks Department replaced the Confederate flag. Later, they changed it to a Union flag. But 40 years later, Feinstein's name would have to be taken off a of school because of that Parks Department decision. The school renaming initiative came eight months into the pandemic. Many San Francisco parents noticed that there was a lot more energy being put into renaming schools than reopening them. It did not help Gabriela Lopez, president of the Board of Education, that the Commission on Renaming did not include an historian and then proceeded to get the history wrong. For instance, they faulted Paul Revere for the Penobscot exhibition. Only the Penobscot exhibition was colonists fighting against the British in Penobscot Bay off the coast of Maine. It was not, as the board asserted, an attempt to steal land from the indigenous Penobscot people. In an interview with The New Yorker, when asked, wouldn't having an accurate account of history have helped the renaming efforts? Lopez answered, quote, no, because I've already shared with you that the people who have contributed to this process are also part of a community that is taking it as seriously as we would want them to. And they're contributing through diverse perspectives and experiences that are often not included and that we need to acknowledge, to which The New Yorker asked, I'm not quite sure what that means when we are talking about things that did or didn't happen. Lopez response, I think what you're pointing to and what I keep hearing is you're trying to undermine the work that has been done through this process. And I'm moving away from the idea that it was haphazard. Eventually, 
the board moved away from the idea entirely. They were focused on renaming about 40 of those schools with the names that some folks found offensive. Their no focus is going to be on getting students back into the classroom. So the board dropped the idea of renaming George Washington High School, but they did want to edit a large mural about George Washington's life that is a fresco within the school. The podcast Banished from Booksmart Productions covered this story, and they played a selection of community members who complained about the painting at school board meetings. This mural the depiction of indigenous no warriors attacking now. white soldiers who stand with their arms raised in surrender erases the reality that George Washington ordered all-out war with about the history of slavery and indigenous genocide Washington. under George Washington or other settlers. Instead, it is teaching students to normalize violence and depth of our Black and Indigenous communities. The school board agreed unanimously, advising that the 90-year-old work originally commissioned as part of the New Deal's public works of art projects be destroyed. A few months later, the board decided by a 4-3 to vote not to destroy it, but to cover the mural up. One of the dissenting votes in that case, meaning still favoring the destruction, was President Gabriela Lopez. Another was board member Allison Collins, who said, quote, The mural is not historic. It is a relic. It is a remnant from a bygone era. You don't get to tell us to keep them. If you want them, come get them. You don't get to threaten us with lawsuits and ballot measures. Then the lawsuit was brought, and the school board lost. A superior court judge overturned the school district's decision to cover up that mural. And they accused school board members of having their minds already made up and not following state rules on art with historic value. At the same time, the board was losing court fights over art destruction in the name of equity and engaging in abandoning school renaming fights in the name of equity. It was also involved in remaking the admission requirements for the city's most prestigious high school, and that was done in the name of equity. Lowell High School, named, by the way, for abolitionist and poet James Russell Lowell, whose work Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech borrowed from, was criticized for underserving black and brown communities. The demographics of the school, according to the California Department of Education, was 51% Asian and just 2% black. Overall, in the San Francisco Unified School District, Asians are about a third of all students, and African Americans represent 6% of the overall school population. Lowell, by the way, was also one of the schools set to be renamed because while James Russell Lowell was a vocal abolitionist his whole life, he was said to have privately wavered in his stance. White students at Lowell High School did pretty much represent the demographics of the district as a whole. It was mostly Hispanic or Latinx students, as per the official designation of the school district, that were underrepresented. And as I said, black students, 6% of the district, 2% of the high school. But over the years there, black students have had numerous complaints. They have staged walkouts over the years and two years ago demanded the termination of the school's principal, vice principal, and a top administrator. A constant demand of black students has been an overhaul of the admissions process. And this year, the school board acceded. Due to the pandemic and the unreliability of grades, the district did away with merit-based admissions at Lowell, or what I suppose critics would call so-called merit-based admissions. This year's freshman class was selected by random lottery. Many parents, specifically Asian parents, were not happy. 
Further roiling their anger was the fact that school board member Allison Collins had in the past tweeted descriptions of Asian Americans as embracing the myth of the model minority local station KTVU had the story. In a closed session special meeting Thursday, the San Francisco School Board voted 5-2 to two to strip Allison Collins of her position as board vice president and from all committees effective immediately. This comes after a 2016 Twitter thread from Collins accusing Asian Americans of using white supremacy to get ahead came to light. The decision comes amidst criticism of the entire board for not reopening schools quickly enough. And that last part was the stress that was underlying the entire recall effort. For every unpopular initiative or misplaced priority, the school board needed to get the big thing right, and the voters yesterday told them they didn't. They didn't even come close. The reason I was so interested in this story, obviously interested given the detail I've gone into, is not just because this is an almost pristine example of unpopular activism, deeply unpopular activism. I find the phenomenon of unpopular activism fascinating because it is often so hard for the activist to ever receive a signal other than keep going, keep going. That's why they call it the struggle. Also, sometimes unpopular activism does become popular. So what's an activist to do? I will admit that is one reason I was following the San Francisco School Board recall story fairly closely, but also because it's a counterexample to the lessons that some drew from places like Loudoun County, Virginia, where progressives painted that county as mostly being subject to a pro-Trump backlash. There is possibly no significant constituency in America more progressive than the voters of San Francisco. Every critic of the school board who I saw quoted in a news story was wearing a mask. This wasn't about anti-science or anti-mask or anti-teaching the real lessons of history. This was about parents desperate to give their children the best their public schools can offer and not having patience with what they deem as irrelevant sideshows in times of crisis or at least near crisis. The three members of the Board of Education who were voted out, their last day on the job should be March 11. The remaining members don't have enough time served to be legally subject to recall. On the show today, well, thank you for indulging me in that expansive introduction. So I shall relent. I shall give you a spiel that's more a tease of tomorrow's interview. But now I'll tease that tease. There was a scene in a sequel to Wreck-It Ralph. Ooh, intriguing. What was revealed in that scene? Don't tease me. No, teasing you, that's what a tease does. But first, I won't tease you when I say we shall now reconvene a vexillology corner. The study of flags had been one of the mainstays of just season one, and so it shall remain in this, the just second season. So I bring you a flag that contains industry and an apiary. Want to know which one? Stick around as Ted K explains up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes, it is that time again. I know you've been waiting for it. It is time for another Vexillology Corner. And here in the corner, the corner man, the secretary of the North American Vexillological Association, the author of the flag design book, Good Flag, Bad Flag, is my recurring guest and returning champion, Ted Kay. Thanks for joining me again, Ted. It's great to be back with you, Mike. It is great to talk to you. We have we have a minor issue just because it's a pretty small county in Missouri. And then we have a major issue because it is a state. So let's talk about the flags. For, I'll tease Utah. We're going to get to Utah, folks. Hang on for Utah. But first, let's talk about St. Francis County, Missouri. I looked at the flag and what doesn't it have on it? Well, St. Francis County has a seal that was cobbled together by one of the county commissioners because there was a need for something on some letterhead and he had to do it overnight. And he himself described it as something that uh, a five-year-old with a fever could do better. And uh, you want a seal to be complex, but you don't want it to be unattractive. And, and this is this is a, a kind of embarrassing. And so he's launched a competition and asked people to help him redesign it. There is a flag and seal shaming trend. I mean, the reason this came to anyone's attention and the administrators of the county never really stood by their seal. They were a little bit embarrassed by it. They didn't say it was good. It just was. But then Reddit got a hold of it and tens of thousands of people mocked it. Is it what, what do you think of that? Is that a positive trend? I mean, it will keep you in business. And by the way, I think you, you do most of your consulting pro bono. But um is that a good trend, the shaming of these flags and seals, or is it regrettable? I think the outcome is good. I think the idea of helping cities improve their iconography, their seals, and their flags is a good thing. Unfortunately, some of the way that it, it comes about is through shaming, and that, that kind of feels, feels bad. I like to go about it in a positive way. I, I like to ask the political leaders four questions. Do you believe that a great city deserves a great flag? And then do you have a great city? And of course they're gonna say yes. Oh, you hook them, you hook them with that one. And then I show them great city flags and show them their flag. And I say, do you believe that you have a great city flag? And if they're honest, they'll say, you know, I could be improved. And then my fourth question is, what are you going to do about it? I think that's a more positive way to go about things than to uh, do the shaming. But the Internet's full of shamers, so it's kind of hard to control that. One more question I wanted to ask you about St. Francis. I read an article where you were quoted in the Washington Post and you said, uh, it's great that they've opened this up to the public, but there was a counterpoint. Not, not without controversy was that statement, Ted, because professional designers said, open it up to the public. We do this for a living. You're going to want to consult us. So we don't want to take the jobs away from any professional designer, but what do you think of that? What are the merits to hiring a professional versus allowing the public to weigh in? There are arguments for both sides. And when I observe what's been going on with hundreds of cities recently, about half of the designs 
come into adoption without going through some kind of public competition. And about half seem to be the result of a public competition. On the side of the public competition argument is building consensus and enthusiasm in the public for flag design, crowdsourcing so you get the best possible designs, and the diversity of ideas that come in through a public competition. On the side of the professional designers is you're more likely to get a great design, especially the designer has studied flag design, which is a very specific piece of design. Uh, a professional designer can cut through all of the uh, mumbo jumbo and come up with some really great designs. And as some of my colleagues in the design community say, they can create a whole system of design for the flag and how it's going to be used. Fundamentally though, I think the argument comes down to if you do a public competition, there are many professional designers who want to participate because it's an opportunity to contribute to their community or it's fun, or it may be glory if they are successful in winning the competition. So I think that there's a, a place for both. And when we talk about Utah, I'll explain how Utah is going down both tracks. Yes. So let's get to Utah, the beehive state. What's the buzz there? Utah is undergoing the process of exploring a new design for its state flag. The governor announced the program in January at the state capitol. I was there and it was very exciting. The rotunda was full of people excited about the idea of a new flag. Utah has a very traditional history-laden flag that has represented the state since uh, for more than 100 years. And it's uh, the very typical seal on a blue background, characteristic of 24 U.S. states have a seal on a blue background, which means at a distance you can't tell them apart. Some of them have decided to write their names on the flag to be able to uh, distinguish them, uh, like Kansas writes Kansas on its flag. Of course, on the back it says Saznak. And does the current Utah flag have the word industry on it? Am I right about that? I believe you are correct. Industry being the concept of the beehive. The beehive is also uh, a Mormon symbol, which is part of Utah's history, but it's a generic symbol of industry, of a community of bees working together. Yeah, but in terms of industry as being manufacturing, Utah actually ranks, uh, which is no shame to Utah. They have a different and diversified economy, but it ranks near the bottom in terms of industrial centers in the United States. Just thought that to be an irony. Yes. And of course, uh, it, it is ironic because Utah isn't a big industrial state, but the word, of course, isn't meant to represent its economy. It's meant to represent a characteristic of its people. Right. But when the Utah flag was designed, perhaps the word industry had a different, as they say, valence. And today it doesn't mean what it sought to convey. So that's if you put a word on a flag, which I think is not the best choice for design, a word like excelsior or a Latin word or a Greek phrase, it might travel better over time than a word like industry. I would just submit. 
And there are words like, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the Maryland flag, though. No, no, that's Saudi Arabia, right? Correct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what is the process that Utah is going to go to to get a new flag? My understanding of the process is uh, it's calling on people to submit designs by the end of April uh, or to submit their ideas, concepts, themes, suggestions by the end of April. They can do so by going to flag.utah.gov, flag.utah.gov. And that's going to create a huge number of submissions that the flag commission, um, actually a committee formed by the commission, will need to go through and narrow down. And I think they're still working on their process of how they're going to deal with those based on how many they get. But I expect they will see thousands of submissions. Coincidentally, I helped with Utah's last such effort to redesign its state flag. This was a competition sponsored by the Salt Lake Tribune in 2002. And more than a thousand designs were submitted and they were narrowed down to a few that the Salt Lake Tribune had its readers vote on. And there were some great designs that came in there. I hope those designers resubmit this time 20 years later. Yeah, I just looked up some of uh, those designs and a lot of them were light blue. There are flowers, but it's more the evocation of a flower. And one of your principles is, can a you know sixth grader easily trace it or draw it? And the answer is yes. But I do think the idea of the bee and the beehive, it showed up in some of the finalists. That should be embraced by the state. That is a an iconic symbol that means something to Utah that no other state has. I really think they'd be doing themselves a disservice if they didn't feature the beehive. If you look at the current state flag, which the largest element in the seal is a beehive, and then the seal itself is surrounded by a, 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 a gold ring, and then there are all kinds of other things in the seal. But if you boil down the current Utah state flag into its basic elements, it would be a stylized gold beehive in a gold ring all on a blue background. That was one of the finalists in 2002. And if Utahns wanted to simply stylize their current flag, not change it, it's really updating the current flag to boil it down to its essence, that would be the design. Right. Uh, which means, you know, shrink the or do away with the eagle, shrink or do away with the uh, the American flag, flag on flag, never a good thing. Now, I understand why Utah would want to emphasize that they're part of America, because that wasn't always a foregone conclusion. It was, you know, a hard fought recognition for the state of Utah. So at one point, proudly asserting, yes, we're really a state quite important to them. Now, I think there are maybe other considerations that they need to emphasize. Indeed, when Utah joined the Union in 1896, they created a huge American flag that hung from the ceiling of the tabernacle. And they had the number of stars corresponding to Utah joining the Union and the star that they viewed as representing Utah had a light above it that shone through it. So Utah 
was the location for one of the first supersized American flags. The Four Corners, the the four states, Utah's three neighbors, or three of Utah's neighbors, I guess, let's count New Mexico as a a neighbor, a catty corner neighbor. So we have Arizona, Colorado, and New Mexico, and then Utah is the fourth of the Four Corners. Those other three are great flags. Indeed, from a flag design standpoint, and I don't want to speak ill of the current Utah flag. There are reasons why Utah has this design and they have to do with history and culture and meaning and civic associations. But strictly from a design standpoint, if you go to the four corners and you look at the four flags, you are correct that three of them stand out as stellar graphic design. And Utah's looks like one of 23 other U.S. states. New Mexico, uh, a Zia sun symbol in red on yellow, It's so iconic, you see it on the license plates. Colorado, three stripes of blue, white, blue with a big red C and a yellow disc in the middle of it. And then Arizona with the the blue stripe at the bottom and the big copper colored star in the middle with the rays of yellow and red streaming from the star in the upper half of the flag. All, All three are iconic state flag designs. So come on, Utah, you can do it. What's the question? Aren't you a great state? Don't you deserve a great flag? I'm confident Utah is going to come out of this with a great flag, and I'm rooting for Utahns. Ted Kay is the secretary of the North American Vexological Association, the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag. You will find him in the Vexillology Corner, beloved GIST franchise, for which there is only audio and no visual representation because the pressure is too much. Thank you so much, Ted. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you again. And now the spiel, kind of, a little bit. You'll see where I'm going with this. So the fuel gauge on your dash, you might know this, but if you look at it, there'll be an arrow. And what the arrow does is it tells you which side of the car your gas tank is located. You know that for your own car, but when you rent a car, it comes in handy. A box of Tic Tacs has a little indentation under the lid suitable for holding a Tic Tac. The Roadrunner never leaves the road in a Wile E. Coyote cartoon. That's what makes it a classic case of chaos versus order. BBC reporters do not thank correspondents. They simply identify them. I love these little rules, these little tidbits, that once you know about them, they can't be unlearned or unseen. Oh, that's interesting. That's, that's the spirit I'm going for. I came across one of these in a great book from Eric Schwartzel about China and Hollywood. The whole conversation that I had with Eric, a good one, will air tomorrow. But today I wanted to make sure we got to this fun fact about Disney princesses. So I hereby highlight this princess fact. I stripped it out. I present it for you. First of all, Eric is here. Hi, Eric. How are you? Hi there. Tell me how you learned this Disney princess fascinating fun fact and then uh, ease us into what the fun fact is. And please do ease us. Our minds might be blown. Your minds might be blown. So I, uh, I cover the film industry for the Wall Street Journal, and I worked on a story a couple years ago about the Disney Princess Factory and the hundreds of people at Disney who often in top secret fashion work on the princess brand. And what I learned was that it is 
it really felt like almost like um, visiting a monastery. There were these different sort of schools of thought about what a princess is, what a princess can be, who qualifies as a princess. And there are all these rules in place, one of which has been that the princesses do not know one another. Ariel does not know Jasmine. Jasmine does not know Elsa. They all kind of exist in separate universes. And one of the ways that they reconcile this is if there's a book bag or a lunchbox that has multiple princesses on it, they draw their eyes so that they are all looking in different directions. So they could plausibly be in different universes, but just sort of happen to be collectively on this lunchbox. So if you if you see this, you really you really can't unsee it. Um, if you look, you'll notice everyone's eyes are in a slightly different direction. There, it's sort of, I guess it's kind of like the Mona Lisa. If you walk by, like someone's looking at you at every given moment, but they're all looking in in different directions. And the reason this came up is because I don't know if you remember this, Mike, but there was a scene in a sequel to Wreck It Ralph. There was this kind of famous scene of all the princesses having this slumber party together. And now for the million dollar question. Do people assume all your problems got solved because a big strong man showed up? Yes! What is up with that? She is a princess. <laughs> and it was this kind of it was this like big moment. And and what was fascinating though about it was it really was the first time we saw the princesses in the same room, but also acknowledging that they were in the same room. And what I found, the reason I found out about this whole crazy eyeball trick was because I found out that within Disney, this inspired like a ton of existential soul searching. They were like, is this, is this really okay? Are we allowed to have, you know, Rapunzel and all these other characters being in the same room and acknowledging that they know one another? Oh, the Disney princesses and their eyes, like Nietzsche said of the abyss, when you look at them, it looks back at you. Thank you so much, Eric Schwartzel. The whole big interview on non-princess ephemera to come. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is assistant producer of The Gist. He has never looked directly at Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist, and both know contractually not to make direct eye contact with Michelle Pesca, Peachfish Productions chief administrative officer. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>